What a beautiful day it is to be alive today. I've uh, got an old friend with me today, Nick. How are you today, Nick? Good, brother. Very good. So Nick and I, uh, we met at Ryan's Hotel. We're playing some music and I haven't actually spoken to you in a while until you you reached out to me a few weeks ago about my podcast and I understand that you're in, in mental health. That's right, mate. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about what, what you guys do? Yeah, sure. So I work with um, uh, an organisation called NEMI National. Okay. Um, so we're Australia-wide and basically we're mental health and well-being workers. Um, well, that's the sector that we work in. So uh, in a nutshell, it's well-being for people in the community who either have a mental health diagnosis or a disability or have been discharged from hospital um, and we work to, to to rehabilitate them within the community so to get okay. them linked into services make sure that they're able to, to live a, a, a meaningful life yeah. and in terms of the organization uh, because when I was doing my internship I worked with youth off the streets yeah um, Father Chris Riley's Youth Off the Streets, and that organisation, it's mainly young people and adolescents. Now, I'm not familiar with your organisation. Does your one cater to one demographic, or is it a range of populations that it caters to? No, well, we have a, a few different programs. Primarily, we, we, we don't work with youth. We'll work with, with adults. Okay. Um, so we're not in the youth or out-of-home care sector. Um but we do have programs for like homelessness, so people sleeping rough. Um, we've got supported housing programs, so uh, we work with housing organisations as okay. well. Okay. Um, uh, to make sure people have a house and then can can maintain a tenancy um, and maybe even move on to their own private rental or, or whatever. Um, we work alongside like your, your youth off the streets and life without barriers. Um, your missions and your Anglicares and that we're all kind of part of the I guess the community social sector from what I'm hearing it seems like you guys are the middlemen you've got the client yeah. you guys are the middlemen connecting them to whatever service that they require yeah that's that's a good way to put it okay yeah now, how long have you been there for? Uh, Nemi, I've only just kind of come on board in the last few months okay um, previously I was in child protection as a caseworker, okay. So I was working with families and children. How did you? How did you find that? That was heavy. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, that was that was a real uh, eye opener in terms of um, the system, for lack of a better word, that the out of home care system. So when a kid comes into care, what what happens next? Okay. And kind of. The journey, for a lack of a better term, um, for them to either be restored to their family or to be adopted or or guardianship with a foster care, foster family. So there's lots of things in between then that you have to do. You've got to you've got to link in with services, a lot of drug and alcohol, um, parole, uh, rehab. You know, a lot of the issues that families face, um, and. The, I think the thing is these days you've got to find a child's forever home yeah. um, and you've got to 
present that to the court within a certain time frame. So this, it's so, <laughs> it's actually really tiring and um, there's a lot of burnout in the sector. Look, I think anything to do with mental health coming from a mental health background is very challenging and I feel like when kids are involved mm. as a caseworker or as a psychologist, there is that obligation to that young person. Mm. So I feel like speaking from my personal experience working at Youth Off The Streets, you feel like you're tippy-toeing on eggshells a lot of the times because you want to make sure you're doing everything properly all the time. Mm. And I feel like when I had that mindset, it wasn't beneficial for me because, yes, we are trained professionals, but we are also human beings. And you said forever homes before, and for me that was very interesting (laughs) because I feel like in my mind, is there anything, is there such a thing as a forever home? And... You can argue that, yes, there is somewhere where the child can live forever, but can you also not say that, well, some challenges might occur when you do part ways with that young person? Yeah. What are your thoughts about that? Oh, look, yeah, definitely. I think it's um, the the approach that you you generally, that I take and, and my training and background in, whether you're working with young people or or families, or individuals, or organisations is trauma-informed. Okay, yeah, definitely. So just understanding the impacts of trauma, particularly during early childhood, and how that can, um, how that comes out in behaviours, and, and often later in life, in early adulthood and that, and in terms of addiction, um, you know, uh, run-ins with the law, relationship breakdowns, homelessness, like all of this stuff. And so... Um, yeah, to kind of get back to, to whether it's working with children or families, um, my role is is kind of trauma-informed practice. Okay. That, that kind of describes it, you know what I mean? I think for, from the psych training I had and from the clientele I've worked with, mm. everything, I can almost guarantee 100% of the time, everything can be traced back to a childhood trauma. Mm-hmm. The... Uh, the way a person behaves as a 25-year-old, whether that's through extreme aggression or through, as you said, alcohol um, abuse or substance abuse or through um, challenges with social relationships, all of that can be traced back to a trauma in their childhood, which is playing itself out still in their life. And what did you find was the biggest challenge? Uh, In terms of working with... With in, ter- in terms of working with the people, but in terms of tracing back the trauma, because you said you're trauma-informed, so you would have had to do a lot of digging and and searching and talking to the people to see, well, hang on, what's going on here? What's really beneath the surface? Yeah, look, it, it's, it takes a team, firstly. So usually you're working with a, a clinician, like okay. a clinical psychologist, okay. um, support workers like myself. Um, you're working with... Uh, like Department of Communities and Justice as well. So there's a lot of kind of parties. They call it wraparound support is like the buzz term. Okay. So um, to to understand, yeah, someone's history. Um, so, and, and then from there, you, you're doing things like um, risk assessments, behaviour support plans, uh, linking in with specialists to understand diagnoses and stuff like that. So it, it's important to get like the, 
as big a picture as possible yeah you know so although you are kind of um trying to understand what's happened in someone's life and whether that was when they were two months old or two or 12 um and kind of everyone's different as well that's the thing so there's also cultural factors at play um you know family dynamics um a lot of the time it's intergenerational trauma yeah so you know generally speaking you can you can see patterns just repeating themselves vicious vicious circles yeah so this is something that mum also experienced or dad did and yeah. so now he's taken it out on the family so um a lot of the times it is uh intergenerational yeah okay and if you really do look at the literature um, nature versus nurture. Mm. Nature definitely does have a huge impact. Definitely. Absolutely. But you've got to look at it in terms of nurture. How, how were these kids raised? What was modelled onto them? Because we know if mum and dad were always arguing and they were always fighting, then we grow up thinking, well, this is normal. And this is not 100% of the time, but for the majority of the time, our upbringing plays such a huge, huge role. And, and what do you think was the biggest challenge for you to to try and to try and break that? Because um, if someone's been doing something for a very long time and they've been uh, they've been thinking like this, their paradigm is a particular way of thinking. Mm. For me, that was a very big challenge, especially when working not with the young ones, but working with older people. Mm. who were set in their thinking. It took a lot of rolling with the resistance and rolling with the anger and rolling with the frustration, which were all manifestations of you hitting a nerve somewhere, mm. which for me, it is therapeutic in a sense, mm -hmm. but you've got to be very careful with how, how well, I had to be careful with how I did that. What was the experience for you? Yeah, definitely working in out-of-home care. So with young people, um, you... you Things don't change overnight. I mean, you can rewire the brain, you know, and, and you can um, help someone learn new ways of coping and dealing with, uh, you know, challenging life <laughs> situations. Um, and you do that through, like I said, like it doesn't happen overnight, but you do it through like predictability. Yep. So, um, and continuity. So like a young person who, who sees that you're, you know, working in out-of-home care, um, just having a, a calm environment, yeah. like just living in some living in a, a house that's clean. It's there's there's not a lot of noise going on, although you play music or you know have the footy on or something. But um, and it's it's kind of like that most of the time. So it's it's calm, it's predictable. Um, they kind of know what to expect, and that that alone will will impact. A child's brain and neural development they call this you probably know about neural plasticity yeah so the brain that that stuff fascinates me you know look it's uh, neuroplasticity it's 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 in its infancy stages yeah. psychology in general it's still in its it's a hundred and something years old but neuroplasticity it's a very very intriguing thing whereby the way the the neurons and the connections in the brain they find different pathways and for someone who has lost an ability to remember, um, we know the, hippo, the hippocampus is responsible for memory. We know that this person can train themselves to find new neural pathways and then a different part of the brain will take 
the chat will take responsibility for memory. Mm. So neuroplasticity is very fascinating, especially when you are trying to assist a young person or an older person or a middle-aged person to learn new things. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, anyone is capable of learning anything unless there is an organic brain disorder. Sometimes some disorders such as schizophrenia or bipolar are very, very significant that you can still teach things, but not to the level that you can teach someone who's going through, say, mild to moderate depression or mild to moderate trauma, whereby that persistence and that training will pay off a lot more than someone who's going through more debilitating mental health and mood disorders. Um, yeah. And look, f- for me, that the the mind, it's a very, very complex thing. I like mm-hmm. to think of the mind as a room. And in that room, there's a million rooms. And in those <laughs> rooms, there's another million rooms. Mm-hmm. And the possibilities are infinite. Um but I, I feel like the biggest thing for me was just that patience. As you said, it doesn't happen overnight. Um, and, and when the young person or when anyone for that matter sees that you are making effort and you are being genuine about it, you're more likely to, to get somewhere with them than if you just do it for the sake of doing it. Yeah. Yeah, they... Um, it's... Your approach as a support worker as I said, is, you know, trauma-informed is, is the general approach we take in, in the line of work that I'm in. Um, we, we also use, like in my current role, we use this thing called CRMs, a collaborative recovery model. Okay. Um, and it's, it's it, you walk alongside someone in their recovery rather than in front or yeah. behind. And you, you, you build their capacity to, to overcome challenges, you know, solve their problems. So, like, a lot of what I do is is um, just listening. Like, that's kind of the, the number one thing that I do day in, day out. If I'm working with, with consumers, as we call them, um, that you, you, what's happening for you right now, you know, like, how, how are you going right now? We, we don't have to jump in and try and um, dig back to the, 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 the trauma or the history or the... You know where it all went wrong, or you know, um, and neither is it up to me to kind of solve those problems. But it's about building that capacity um, to help people, you know, build their own skills to to overcome challenges. Yeah, I think you know? essentially helping them to help themselves. Yeah. So that that collaborative recovery model. That's that's what it is basically. And and there's some great tools which I use in my everyday life. Like I'll I'll use them with friends and family like just just listen can you give me an example listening mate (laughs) that's the thing like just you know speaking to you you know like or or speaking to um friends when i'm out at a cafe or or wherever i am family first thing i'm doing is just listening because if, if i'm if i'm jumping in and trying to solve the problem or get to the solution um oftentimes you you miss the point yeah I think if you if you look at it from a literature point of view, most people don't want you to solve their problems. Mm. Most people just want to feel heard. Yeah, mate. And in divulging all of that information to you, that's therapeutic in itself mm. because they're offloading a lot of that weight and not giving it to you particularly, mm. but it's just like imagine if you've got 
something that's being bogged down and you want to just put some of that weight somewhere else mm. or just offload it. Mm. That talking is very therapeutic in itself. Absolutely. And you mentioned that that's when you were working with the young people and you mentioned that you started with a new organization a few months ago. Mm. How's that? What was, what's been the biggest challenge or what's been the biggest difference? Um, well, it's been, <laughs> um, good to be energized to go into work and again, and not, uh, be in the child protection role that I was in because, um, yeah, like I said, burnout there is, is quite common. Um, and just working with courts and, um, the department and, uh, families with, with a lot of stuff, a lot of barriers, like you, you, you realize just the scope of, of what people are up against. Um, and you, I, I found myself just like forgetting why I got into it in the first place. And that was to help young people live, um, fruitful, meaningful lives, you know? Um, so to, to come across to Nimai now has been able to have that kind of perspective again. Okay. That's, uh, although I'm not working with young people, we work with adults with, um, psychosocial, um, disabilities. Okay. Um, and we, it's like, okay, how do we access the NDIS? You know, let's let's get some supports in place that will help you with your supported living, transport, social interaction, um, personal care, uh, whatever it is. You know, so it's it's quite exciting because you realise just um, how much help there is out there, um, and I get to do that as a job. So that's. That's that's been the best thing about coming across, you know. Yeah. Sometimes it's good to it's good to start fresh. It gives you a new perspective, and I feel like it breathes new life into you. Um, mm. An example for me is I know this is very unrelated, but <laughs> playing music, for example, when mm. you do the same kind of practice or you play the same thing the same style for a long time, you think, oh man, like I've got to do something a bit different <laughs> to kind of challenge myself, yeah. to kind of get, to kind of breathe that life back into it. And it seems from what you're saying, you worked in the child sector for so long that it, it burnt, burnt you out and you kind of lost, you, you, you lost yeah. focus and you lost where you, why you got into it in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, I love the music thing because, you know, you and I are both musos and that's how we met. Um, and just just how something like music, like the common language, you know, that music speaks to something within all of us, you know, even even people who wouldn't necessarily say they're, they're into music or they don't play an instrument or, or whatever. Um, those common languages really interest me. Music's something I use in this role still. Okay. Like we have a guitar in the office. And, okay. You know, I was just... I was just playing it yesterday and, and our manager said, oh, it's great to hear just a guitar in the office. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and normally the, the music that you draw on, is there a particular type of music that you play or? <laughs> oh, mate, look, at the moment, <laughs> I, I guess I've kind of grown up listening to a lot of blues, folk, rock and roll stuff like the Stones, the Beatles, Fleetwood Mac. Um, and then when I was, you know, growing up in the 90s, you're listening to... Nirvana and Smashing Pumpkins and Radiohead and all of that. But like I kind of, my music that I play would kind of be a bit more country, I guess. Okay. <laughs> Alt country. But I'll still play, you know, piano and punk stuff, stoner. 
<laughs> how effective or in terms of the effectiveness would you say it's a more effective method playing music than other methods oh look yeah, guitar in particular has been the therapy of my life without it I don't know where I'd be okay so I like I'm so appreciative of of just having something in my life that is so natural it's so organic mm. I can just pick up and start playing and it's um, speaks to you in a way yeah like I, and I know you know people have kind of I've, I've seen over the years like I've been playing guitar and people are sat talking to me and I can't hear it because you're in a zone and it comes quite, across as rude yeah. <laughs> uh, but um, y- you know I, I've learned to kind of not not care about that but it's it's a form of self-care so it's 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 a beautiful thing to be in the moment wherever you are you know and guitar does that for me you mentioned before uh, when you were working in the previous organization with the young kids you said burnout's very big what was one of the things you did besides guitar to help you cope with that uh oh look try and Stay physically active. Okay. So I go for a run or a swim. Um, my daughter keeps me on my toes a lot, so we're either going for a bike ride or a bushwalk, or we've got a party to go to or something. Or how, old, how old's your daughter? Six. Okay. So <laughs> what's what's her personality like? Um, oh, look, she's awesome. She's just like the the light in my life. She's I think she's she she's probably a lot like me in that she's. She's quite adventurous. She okay. likes getting up and doing a lot of stuff. Um, she, which is, would you say she's musical too? <laughs> she likes piano. Okay. Um, and she will play piano, and we've done a couple of lessons. I want to, I want to actually get her some proper lessons when we go back to normal. And, okay. You know, COVID is is over, but um, she's very social. Um, uh, yeah, I'm so proud of her already in 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 her the the way she is in the world. You know. Um, she's got a great mum as well um, so she's got a really solid family network um, you know aunts, uncles, grandparents so she, and then that gets back to that kind of that family grounding how important that is and I think that that was my reason for asking yeah. and that was my reason for you're asking you're tricking me bro you're tricking these responses <laughs> I, I didn't want to ask trick me Ed I didn't want to ask you in a direct way but that was my that was my roundabout way of yeah. of asking you not to trick you. I was gonna tell <laughs> I was gonna tell you what what the purpose was. Anything I ever ask normally has not an agenda, but I, I like to think outside the square. And my way of asking you, or my way of introducing, asking you to introduce your daughter or your mm. family and how she is. And getting you to disclose that mm. she's had a very healthy upbringing. Yeah, that's the, that's the thing. Yeah, and, and naturally that's where it led me. It, it um, I work with children who don't have that, um, and then coming home to my daughter who does. That was one of the things that was particularly hard. Okay. About working in in child protection, like um, because you just see the the importance of parenting. It's, it's 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 so important. It's the most important thing in a child's okay. life. Speaking from someone, uh, and I do definitely agree with what you're saying. And uh, speaking f- from my personal experience, I 
we we get taught to develop our skills in terms of not being biased and in terms of not passing judgment and in terms of listening mm. but i feel like we are all humans and i know that at times when i did hear parents say certain things in my mind i'm like well you shouldn't be doing this mm-hmm. or this is not good can't you see this mm-hmm. do you ever did you ever have those times and moments where you thought to yourself what the hell are they doing or what the hell's going on here like I would never do this as a parent. All the time. Okay. Every day. Um, Obviously, I would never say that to the parents. No, no, and you, and you don't, um, and you're not there to judge. You're you're there to support. Yeah. Um, so, um, there, there's there's strategies that, that are put in place, or there's um, you know we we you, you have case plans or things like family contact, supervised contact, stuff like that. So. Um, working with young people, it was always well. Their their well being is number one. Their safety is number one. So, if if a parent has shows up and they're like you said, they're they're having a moment or something's not right or they're under the influence or um, you you pretty quickly weigh it up. You assess it and go right. Oh, we we're just going to end this contact now. That yeah. that type of thing. So you know th- that look that happened. All the time. <laughs> um, Can you give me an example of a standout instance that you'll never forget? Yeah. Um, look, I mean, I, I remember meeting with a meeting with a mum and dad who had come out of rehab, and and this was like our our first meeting to look at the the possibility of 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 reintroducing a supervised contact so they could see their their daughter again. Okay. Um, and they turned up to the meeting and they were both obviously like off their face. Okay. Like they, they were actually needed an ambulance, you know. Um, so in, in that, you know, you, that moment you, luckily the young person wasn't even there, but your role there is to kind of, okay, what's happening right here, right now, right? So we're not talking about their case plans or the family contact or anything. Yeah. It's like the well-being of this, this, you know, husband and wife who have obviously relapsed and they've just come out, so we need to right, call an ambulance. Let's get the support workers involved as well. I've just got to, you know, so you, 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 you're in the moment and you're assessing that stuff, you know. Um, yeah. And I, and I think, I'm not, I think, I believe in that scenario that the, the first, concern, my first concern wouldn't be the child, not because the child's not important, but it would be those two people, as you said. What can I do for them to... Yes, although they've relapsed again, but what can I do for them to help them move forward? Yeah, like and, and that that example, like that that wasn't the end of the story. That was just one. Uh, that was just one day where look, that happened quite a lot for that family and for others that I worked. But that that's an example of of um, parenting and the importance of making sure that the child is safe. And obviously, you know, if mum and dad are in in that state. Chances are the child is not safe. Not safe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, getting back to the parenting thing, you know, that's um, it. It is so important that uh, you know, like, the kids have that safety and um, predictability, and yeah. So again, this this, <laughs> I no longer work in that in that role. So revisiting some of this stuff, it's sometimes it takes a a, a long time to reflect on what you've done, and. Um, 
I, that situation happened quite often, so it's a bit of a spin-out to kind of revisit it, to be honest. Look, I think in you saying that, it shows me that as, as a person and as a dad and as a support worker, you've spent a lot of time reflecting on yourself in the moment with those people. Oh, totally, yeah. Um, and I feel like as human beings, it's so important that we not just do that in therapy, mm. but we do that in an everyday situation because... Yes, you might not be talking to someone in a professional setting, but the things we say to some people and the way we come across to some people can really have a big impact on them, whereby they think, and a perfect example, it happened yesterday, I was playing the streets, mm-hmm. and I some I don't normally take money, but people still give me money. And I spoke to someone who approached me and they said, can I have $2 to buy a beer? They had $12 or $13 and they, want, they wanted to buy a case. Mm-hmm. And I gave him the money and then I thought about it. I thought, no, no, hang on. You're going to buy a beer? Can I have my money back? He goes, oh, you're judging me. And <laughs> I realized in the moment, I said to him, look, no, sir, I'm not judging you, but I'm not going to give you my money for you to go and buy alcohol. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it, the way I said it, I, I didn't intend for it to come across as judgmental, but I think the way I said it in the heat of the moment, he didn't like that. He said, because he, he said, oh, I see how you roll now. I said, look, I did t- give you the, t- it was only $2. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, I didn't have a case, but people were still kneeling down and, and giving me money next to my M. Okay. Um, but my rationale for not, for taking it back was, well, hang on. If you're going to take the money to buy food, fair enough, but I'm not going to give you my money to go and buy alcohol. Mm-hmm. So... In his mind, it came across as judgmental, but in my mind, it was justified. But I think in the moment, thinking about it now, (laughs) the way I said it, I didn't raise my voice, I didn't scream, but the way I worded that thing wasn't wasn't worded... I don't think it was worded nicely. I could have come across a different way where I could have said, look... I know I did say yes to the two, although it was $2, but there's people that don't have food and I, I think it's fair to give it to that person, not someone who might want to buy alcohol. But I don't think there's a nice way of saying it. Do you agree or disagree? Oh, man, I, I think just the fact that you're reflecting on it is is the most important part of it. You, you know, we've, we've all done things in the moment that on, on reflection, oh, yeah, maybe I didn't handle that so well. So... So to me, that's yeah, no, no drums at all. The fact that you, you you're looking back and going, well, how might I have responded, or how might someone else have felt, or how did I feel, and you you get better at that the more you do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're, the reality is, you're going to be in the moment. You're going to be in prickly situations throughout your life where, um, you know, and you, you just respond on impulse. Yeah. Um, that's that that's a big thing in in. We we literally call it reflective practice yeah. in 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 my team where you there's no judgment you can raise a scenario where you felt that you might might not have handled the best or you just weren't sure what to do um, and and you reflect on it and other people uh, support you with well you know what that happened to me last week as well yeah. I think with that example to be honest. Um, Oh, most of the time I'd be like, no, you're not having the money, and you've that's fine, you know. One day I might go, oh look, yeah, there you go, bro, whatever. But it's, it's um, being in the moment is um, a lot harder than than 
you know, you, if you don't reflect on these things, it is harder when you've to day to day in these moments kind of thing. And look, the thing is with me, I, I, I reflect on like, I'll go home now or after we finish this and I'll reflect on the conversation we had mm. just because that's, that's the person I've trained myself to be. And mm-hmm. I've, as you said, the more you practice doing it, the better you will be. And I feel like as a society, we're not always in the moment. Absolutely. We're, we're, we're always on the go or we've got gadgets or we're doing something which hinders our ability to be in the moment. Mm. Um, I feel like the reason why I really did think about it or I did feel a little bit of guilt was because I did give him the money. I, he said, can I have the money? Because mm. I was walking and I was packing my stuff and I don't know. I don't even know why he asked me for it. He's putting you on the spot. I yeah. said, can I have a few dollars? I said, yeah. Sure. And I didn't say no. I said, yep, here you go. He goes... Oh, I, and I said, what's the money for? Like, do you mind if I ask? Mm-hmm. Because normally if I see someone and I'm going to get them something, I don't normally give money. Mm-hmm. I would buy a sandwich or a dollar cup of coffee or just something very small. Totally. So in that instance, I wanted to ask him, what is it for? For sure, bro. And that's in, it. And he, and he told you and, you and something and you went, well, hang on, no. And I think that's fine, mate. Um, you know. <laughs> and I think that the reason why I got caught up in it was because I, 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 I didn't ask him first. I gave him the two bucks. And then after I gave it to him, I'm like, oh, okay, I just want to see what it's for. <laughs> and when he said he's going to buy some beer, I said, well, hang on, give it back to me. Well, yeah. you know, uh, people will test you. People will push your buttons deliberately. And you know, that, that bloke knew what he was, why he wanted the money. And he was just seeing how what you said about it. And, okay, you initially gave it to him and then you said, oh, hold on, give it back. Nothing changed for him. He knew. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's just that you're... You're coming from a place of giving, obviously, and I know you, so it's I know that you're like, yeah, for sure, I'll, you know, I want to put good energy out into the world. Yeah, hundred percent. And there was, <laughs> look, and I, I, when I looked at him, I didn't think he didn't look like he was homeless or anything. He just yeah. looked like a, just a, a random passerby. Yeah, right. So, and he didn't. He looked at my case and he knew that it was closed on this side, but <laughs> because I've got my am, people just piled the money next to it. Yeah. Yeah. And he said, Can, do you mind if I have two bucks from that? I yeah. said, yeah, hit me, go for it. I didn't give it two thoughts. And then I said, oh, do you mind if I ask what it's for? He goes, I'm going to buy a six pack. I thought, hang on here. <laughs> you don't need the money to buy food. I'm not going to give you the money to buy alcohol. Like, I, don't, I don't support that. But look, and, I, and totally, because what you're doing is you're, you're facilitating his dependency yeah. on, you know, like, and, and a lot of what I've learned in... in the roles that I've done is that it's it's okay to sit with with uncomfortability. Yeah. And it's okay to sit with with an awkward situation. It's okay to sit in silence with someone if if something's gone down or they've said something or challenged you or. But if if you're doing it, you, you're doing it because you want to help them find their own way of improving. You know their 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 lot, their situation. In life. And, and that was my rationale behind it because I. <laughs> I, I never judge anyone or I, I don't judge people as much as I used to. And mm. if there is a judgmental thought that comes, I normally stop it or I reflect on it. But the way I thought about it was, well, hang on, I'm out here playing music and I'm not asking for any money. So I'm out here trying to make a difference. Mm-hmm. And someone happened to someone, I, my music resonated with someone who left me a few dollars in gold coins why should I give that money to someone, pass that money, pass that good energy on to someone who wants to buy alcohol? 
So that, that, that was my... You shouldn't. <laughs> that, that, that was my overarching thought. But I feel like the, the sense of... The guilt within me only got activated because of what he said. But I didn't take it... I didn't let it affect me in terms of I'm not losing sleep over it. But I was just using that as an example to the point you made before. And which made me think, well, it's not what I said. It's how I said it. And, and that's why... You'll be better for that because you're reflecting on how you said it. How how were you in the moment? Uh, that's the important part, mate. And I think um, to, you mentioned that as a society we don't do this enough. You know, we kind of just go about our day and have a million of these little interactions, and you get pissed off at him, and then she pisses you off, and then you know, like I think we're um, if we were to stop and reflect, it's, and that's the importance of self care as well. Self-care is a very big thing, and yeah. I think another big thing which they don't really teach, I know in my degree, psychology, there, there was no course that teaches you to work on yourself. Mm. As a therapist, I was a phenomenal speaker. Phenomenal. Mm. I did the best interviews, <laughs> and because I did really good interviews, I had a bubbly personality, the employers always wanted to give me the, the jobs I wanted, Yeah, but... I hadn't dealt with the trauma that I went through when I was a young person. Mm. Um, there was no, nothing like that university to help. So all of the biases and the traumas I had, I took them into therapy with me. Of course, my intention was not to harm the person as their, as their clinician. Mm. But even if you're a teacher, even if you're an athlete and you want to teach someone, if you've got those biases from the past and you've got those traumas that you haven't, worked on they're always going to be exhibited and they're always going to be manifested in the new conversations or the people that you're working with it's it can be no other way totally mate and and it doesn't it doesn't discriminate whether you're a a professional yourself or whether you're you're homeless or whether you're the ceo or like mental health will happen yeah (laughs) um and i think what it's no different to a broken leg for a soccer player. Look, or, definitely. You know, you, you're still a, a good, like I'm, I'm kind of talking about my own experience, but as, as a soccer player, I know how frustrated I get when I've, I've got an injury. I mean, I'm still the player I am, but I'm not at my best. And I, I need to, you know, get some, I need to let it heal. Yeah. I need to do the work. Mental health is the same, mate. Look, I do agree with you. I think it goes a bit, a bit deeper than that in terms of someone's break if you've got a broken leg you know that you've got to put the plaster on you've got to do um a b c d mm-hmm. wait for this long and boom it's it's healed and you can start your rehab or start playing again the mental health aspect what you don't see how, how do you know what's going on really that's where you've got to know you, that's where self-care and reflection um, and brings that stuff up and look, self-care is such a big thing. And, and as I was saying before, like I think students, whether you're a high school student, whether you're a primary student, whether you're a university student, there should be people teaching other people how to how to work on their traumas. Mm. But for me, it's very easy to talk about other people's traumas. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about myself in therapy. I used to talk about it all the time. Mm. If someone touched a nerve about my trauma, I would up and roar and <laughs> shake down houses because it's not a comfortable thing to talk about our stuff. Men- you, you, totally, mate. And um, mental health in general. 
And the more, the more I practiced talking about my stuff and the more I practiced being vulnerable and the more I practiced letting go, the easier it became for me to do this with other people yeah. and the more naturally it became and the more I felt like I was coming from a place of knowing. Yep. Um, and what I mean by a place of knowing, a place of nothingness. There's no, no trauma attached to it. Yeah. Um, and I could roll this way and not change and I can roll this way and yeah. not change my my temperature would be unhindered yeah and there's a great freedom in that yeah and, and I think you know possibly it comes with with time and wisdom and age you know like <laughs> uh, you, we were talking before just about you're a different person at 18 than, than you are at 30 you know and um, at 18 you, you're 100 miles an hour and you don't necessarily, I don't know how many 18-year-olds do, stop and reflect. <laughs> Look, I'm, I'm 29 now, and I think I'm 150 miles <laughs> an hour. And the reason I <laughs> say this baby. is because I've got more awareness, and because I do have more awareness, I want to instill more change in the world. Yeah. And you, you touched on something before. You said with time, things change, and... I'm a very honest person. I have to respectfully disagree with this. And let me tell you why. <laughs> if time heals everything, then the person who's gone through a trauma 20 years ago, if they let 20 years pass, that trauma should go. But the time hasn't changed anything. For me, what changes things is, as you said before, that reflection, <laughs> which is a big factor, but also the work. Yeah, doing the work. For me... Yeah. 50 years can lapse but there can still be no change absolutely it's like I've got this beautiful guitar here I can look at it mm -hmm. for 40 years and think man I'm going to be good mm -hmm. if I'm not doing the hard yards on the guitar um, there's nothing going to change irrelevant of how much time lapses oh absolutely you need to the, there needs to be some action you need to take action and whether that's like your micro routines like just getting a good night's sleep yeah you know, I, I know at 18 years old I didn't I burnt the candle you know, most of the time, like, you know, whether that was going out to see bands or at a pub and then waking up early and, you know, and then playing soccer three times a week and, like, you, you are going at 100 miles an hour. But if, you know, since then, um, I value a lot, I value sleep so much more, you know. At 37 years old, I'm like, right, I'm, I, I can't wait to get a good night's sleep, you know, and it sounds so boring, but it's like, yeah, sleep rocks, man, um, but there's, and, and like cooking dinner, you know, like that's, and there's a therapy in that, but um, all of these little routines, they start to add up. Yeah, definitely. And they're the actions that, yeah. Definitely, and, and that's with, with anything, anything in life. It's little steps, and I'm, I'm using the guitar as, a, as an example because mm. that's something that I've really invested my time into, or with soccer. Mm. You don't start doing complete dribbles the, the moment you touch the ball. You that's start it. with little things. Yeah. With guitar, you start learning which string is which. You start learning which fret is which. You start mm. learning which chord is which before you go into scales. And I think that's, 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 that's what life is. There is no... What, what is a complete picture? There is, there is no complete picture. No, and there is no destination to um, get to and everything's fixed. Like, yeah. they, they say in the Bible we go to heaven, and I, I questioned this the other day. I said, is there a heaven? Mm -hmm. And we don't know. Mm -hmm. I said, the only place we're definitely going is six foot under the ground. This is, this is a definite. There is and, a heaven. I think it's called Nashville. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think any any country musician would. Yeah, bro. <laughs> any, <laughs> you know, I I'm a big fan of I'm a big fan of wittiness and, and yes. banter, and I didn't think you're gonna have an answer to that, but you pause. <laughs> you pause. Well, you, for, no you pause for a few seconds, and I thought, man, how's he gonna how's he gonna come out of this one? And, and music row in Nashville. That's what the musos have moved. <laughs> that was so that. You're, was, you're wrong. That was, no, look, you know what? If if someone if someone's got a better argument than myself. I'm the first person to put the hand up and say, look, <laughs> it's a better point. Um, and I, I understand why you said that. As a country musician, Nashville is a place to go. And we're having this discussion before before you, before you, we started this interview with this is your destination. And well, yeah, obviously is, COVID's changed things up a little bit. Yeah, and I guess that's a, you know, that's, life, that's how life goes. You know, my, my big plan was to, to be in Nashville this year and try and sell some songs and meet people and, and hit the big time and just give it a go, you know, and you might say, well, that's a, your wishful thinking or whatever, but that, you yeah, know, I, I'm, I'm all for that. Yeah. And I was so excited. And then COVID happened this year and it's like, okay, well that's, there goes that. And it's not to say I won't, I won't get there, but, um, having, having something to aim at is, is so important for, that's why you take action. That's why you get up in the morning. That's why you go to bed at night and, and want to get a good sleep. So you've got the energy to do the thing that you're aiming for, you know. And I think this is this is this what make this is what makes life beautiful. I think when we strive for something, when we have an ambition, mm. and we work towards that ambition, that's a beautiful thing. And I feel like, speaking from my experience, the biggest challenge is I do have a lot of ambitions mm. that sometimes <laughs> I don't stop in the moment, and I and I enjoy most of the day, but not all the day, or I'm not thinking. I'm not thinking in the moment. I'm thinking, okay, I'm doing this. This is what I'm going to be doing next instead of savoring every second. Totally. You, you um, need to. You need to pause. I think there was a, there was a really good quote from, I think it's Brian Eno, who was like a music producer. I think he produced U2 and like he's, he's a pretty famous dude, but he's kind of behind the scenes. But he, he, the quote was, one of the most inspiring things you can do is clean clean the studio or clean your house because inspiration will strike as as you're kind of doing and getting prepared for something and when it does strike and you've got a clean studio you're you're ready to roll but unless you if you just sit around and 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 you know you things are piling up and you're not stopping to kind of reset yeah um it's hard to be inspired yeah it's overwhelming yeah yeah and I love that quote, you know, um, I'll, I'll do it, I'll, if I'm kind of, if I have a bit of songwriter's block or something, or even a, a shit day at work or something that I'm not happy with in my life, I'll clean and it always helps, you know, even if it doesn't solve the thing or whatever it is, like the next day, walking into a clean room yeah. or a clean studio. You can think clearer. You can. And, and you, you, cleaning yeah. is therapeutic. Well. Itself, yeah, cleaning in itself is, yeah. I've got a question for you. What uh, We're talking about mental health and this whole thing's been about your experiences and your your work with young people and, and older people. What got you into, what got you into the sector? Um, I Initially when I left school, I was always a very creative kid. Um, so I, I loved painting and drawing and playing guitar and 
uh, when I left high school, I went to art school. So I did three years of like fine arts and majored in like printmaking and then moved to Sydney and had a, a printing business. Okay. So that was before I'd even, uh, I knew what social work was. <laughs> so that was about 10 years of, of doing that. Um, How old were you when you started this? I went about 28. I went back and did a degree. Okay. Um, and started volunteering. So I volunteered firstly with refugee set resettlement, which was bloody awesome because you kind of thrown in the deep end in terms of helping people navigate services and language and countries like you know there, there was so much that I learned from that and I was just volunteering yeah. um, then I was offered a role in refugee resettlement and it was part-time but I was at the same time just finishing up in Sydney and moving back down to Wollongong um, from that I went uh, I got offered a role in out-of-home care and with kids and the rest is history I've, I've worked a bit in housing then child protection and now in with Nimai. So I guess what got me into it was, um, I was talking about this other day in a training thing. There was no light bulb moment. It was just a natural progression of where am I best, where am I best serving? You know, where can I apply these kind of strange arbitrary skills that I have? You know, I'm, I'm not an IT dude. I'm not a tradie. <laughs> I, I'd have to disagree with you, man. <laughs> the reason I say you said you're not an IT dude, maybe you might not know how to use a computer, but I'm having a look at this 24-channel mixer you've got here and yeah. the piano and the amps. You, you know some stuff about technology. Mate, you'll notice there's no computer, though. These, these are <laughs> These are hands-on big knobs that I can play with. You know, I love playing with big knobs, Ed. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, in all seriousness, I know, I know what you mean. I yeah, look, I, I my skill set is um, I don't I don't know. I'm still finding it out. I would I, say you're a people person. People, yeah, that's what I was about to say. And listening to people's stories is such a rewarding line of work to be in. Like I get to share in so many weird and wonderful things. That's you know. Do you? F I'm asking this question. Because this is the question that two very prominent psychologists asked two decades ago. They did a study, mm. and their study was looking at why people in the helping profession help others. Mm -hmm. And those are the two reasons. To do for other people mm -hmm. what was done for them, mm -hmm. or to do for other people what they wish had been done for them. Yeah, okay, that, and that they, resonates, yeah. And they feel like... Any time someone is in the helping profession, whether it's a teacher, a nurse, psychologist, counsellor, youth worker, it, the, the two big themes are to do for other people mm -hmm. what has been done for me, mm. to do for other people what I wish had been done for me. Okay. And from my personal experience, it, it's to do for other people what I wish had been done for me. I've never heard that before, mate. That's an excellent way to put it. Um, and it definitely resonates. Okay. You know? So thinking about it from that point. Yeah. Is... Yeah. Um, I definitely identify with a lot of things that I hear in, in, in my day to day. Like I definitely can empathize a lot. Like I find myself putting myself in the shoes of others so much, you know, and, um, that, that's possibly what, 
has led me to to you know on the path that I've been on with as a as a social worker, um, because I'm I'm seeing myself in them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, mate. And that was and that was I. You said before you're not sure why you got into it. Now and, I know. Thank and, you, Ed. And, and I and I feel like <laughs> as I said, I've, I've oh, there's always a reason behind my question and. <laughs> For me, it's no coincidence that you are doing what you're doing. Maybe I guess not. No, maybe yeah. as an 18 year old, you said you were 100 miles an hour playing soccer three days a week. You didn't yeah. have time to slow down and reflect on those. Mm. And I feel like as time progressed, you did different things, which brought about those things or something. You said there was no light bulb moment, but I think somewhere within you lit up, which enabled you to take that pathway. Totally. You know, if you had told me at 18 where I'd be at 37, I, I just would have looked at you with a blank. It's like, what? What do you mean? What, yeah. what even is that? You know, who is that guy? You know, but but uh, along the way, there was something in me that was drawn out, or there was a calling kind of thing, I guess. Yeah. Um, and and even looking back now, I can I can notice certain parts of my formative teenage years, even childhood. Where that spark, I still have that same spark where yeah. I'm I'm seeing myself in others. Yeah, you know, and it's it's a I'm really grateful to to have kind of been made aware of that in myself. It's it's a very beautiful thing, and I'm I'm saying that because I understand as well. Mm. Because if I was to reflect on my 18 year old self, mm. I wouldn't have. Thought I would have been taking this path, although I did do a master's degree and I did work in the profession. Mm. I feel like I'm making more of a difference now than I was five years ago. Not because I was a bad dude five years ago. Mm. I meant really well, but I hadn't healed my trauma. I hadn't healed my trauma. Yeah. So yeah. my perspective was was very skewed. Whereas yeah. now I don't really have a perspective. Mm. You, you're just taking things as they come. Um, I like to think yeah. of myself as water. Yeah. I can take any shape possible. You put me in a glass, I'll, I'll take that form. Yeah. You yeah. put me in a box, I'll take that form. Yes, I still do have my biases mm. and I still do have my judgments, but I feel like that's what makes us humans. But I'm very less likely to be that way. I can, I'm very aware of it and I can switch on and off whenever I need to. Yeah, and... And realizing that you don't have all the answers is a real, really comforting thing. It's, that's that's a good thing. Imagine <laughs> if you have, you can go to the shops now, local book bookstore, buy Nick's Life or buy Ed's Life, and you know exactly what's happening. It wouldn't wouldn't be <laughs> what it, a wouldn't, read. it wouldn't be exciting. Would there be photos in these books? I know that there'll be photos of Nashville for you. <laughs> Oh, there, yeah, that's fine. That's Singing some, there's uh, probably a lot of incriminating photos there. No, no, man, I, 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 I only want, I only want happy things for you. You said Nashville is your heaven, so I would have some photos of Nashville with some country people in there. What, what does if you have to? Okay, if you have to, you said you're very artistic, and this is a creative question. If you have to imagine your life, and for me, I don't like to think of the future too much because it takes away from the present. I don't like to think of the past too much because it takes away from the present. Mm -hmm. Thinking about those things is a very valuable thing, but I like the present moment. But if you were to quickly zone out of now and mm -hmm. picture your life, say you're 37, by the age of 40, what would, what would an ideal life look like for you? What would you want your life to look like? Yeah, it's... 
like something I've thought of in terms of um, setting setting out like goals for myself and uh, and and how to get there and changing things about what I do today to make tomorrow better to make next year better that kind of thing. Um, look, by forty, that I'd be. I'd like to be fitter than what I am now. <laughs> um, but look, I think a lot of what I aim for in, in you know, the, the near future or in the next few years revolves around my daughter. Okay. So I'd like to be as happy and as healthy as I can be um, physically and mentally for her. Yeah. Um, I mean, she's six and like I can, it was like yesterday she was born. She's already six and she's got her buddies and she's got her own... Um, personality and I can see um, how much she values uh, how much she gets from again parenting but like a happy healthy dad you know and, and that she, she my well-being will directly impact her in some way and you know this this gets back to like trauma and and you know the impact of the importance of parenting and um, what our kids see and learn from us um, what we learnt and saw and from our parents. Um, so, you know, I, I, the best version of myself would be a happy and healthy father at 40, you know. Um, and, you know, other stuff like write a couple of hit songs and sell, sell them to Taylor Swift, you know. That would be pretty cool. <laughs> I think any, anything, I keep saying I think, I believe anything you do for your well-being and you really want to do it for you, it's going to positively affect her, mm. Mm. Um, whether she knows it or not. And I feel like people... For me, my biggest asset in life is me. Because I know I don't have any kids, but if I'm my biggest asset, I'm going to be the biggest asset to my kids. Yeah. Um, and I don't know what it's like to be dad. I can only imagine how beautiful and challenging and adventurous <laughs> and mixed emotion... Like it is, Um, (laughs) but I can only imagine, and I I say I can only imagine because I've seen my dad raise three young kids. I I was well into my teens when he had another family, and I saw the challenges associated with that, and the beauty associated with that, and the I don't want to say it's a mess, but it's like it's like a it's like a it's a beautiful puzzle. Mm. You don't know how the pieces are going to fit in together mm. but somehow they do yeah somehow life just happens and that's that's what makes life beautiful yeah I, what, what you said about um, you being your best asset and you being the best version of yourself is 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 something that again in my line of work if, if you're not checking in with yourself you you can't really help anyone like if you're if you're not putting your hand up and going, look, I just need a a day off or I need some time, I need five minutes or whatever, you're you're probably not in the best position to to help others. And it's so important because we all have those times. Look, sometimes in life we have to be selfish. And I'm not saying... You do, yeah. I'm not saying be selfish because I'm a selfish person. But if there's someone in the tide and they're drowning and I don't know how to swim... If I'm gonna dive in there, we're both gonna be dead. So true. So, so what, what can I wanna... you do? Yeah, in that moment too. And being yeah. being courageous is for me. That's not being courageous. For me, that's being crazy. Mm-hmm. Because if I don't if I don't know how to swim, mm-hmm. we're both gonna die. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
If, Some... if it's high winds, high seas, and I don't know how to swim, and they don't know how to swim, we're both going to die. Totally. So I'm only going to jump in there if I'm a good enough swimmer. Yep. To bring the person back. And you said courage, courage, and and it's it's brave. It, it like I mean, it is brave to put your hand up and go, I I'm sorry, I'm out. I need to tap out, or sorry, I can't help here, or um, even in terms of mental health. I mean, October's been Mental Health Month. Yeah. Um, I'm aware of it because it's in, in our line of work. Um, and I feel like this year has been a mental health year <laughs> for definitely given you know the shit show of, of COVID and socialized social social isolation. But like I think um, you know that that stuff won't go away. There's still going to be times where we feel like not our best selves, or we're we're isolated, or that we that we can't actually you know we need to to, to reflect, look inward, and do some self care. That that's still going to be there, you know, next year, five years from now, and it is a, I think it's a real, um, it's a really good thing to to put your hand up and say, look, just need to to take some me time. For me, that's being vulnerable, mm. and vulnerability, contrary to what a lot of men might think, because I know a lot of Australian men think, oh, talking yeah. about feelings, only horses do this. Mm. But for me, vulnerability is one of the strongest thing any man or woman could do. Yeah, me too. You do put your hand up and you say, look, I'm not feeling too good. Or look, I need some help. Or look, I've stuffed up. I've done the wrong thing, but I'm going to be honest about what what I've done. For me, that is the real strength and the real courage. And the more we do do this, whether we're health clinicians or whether we're just normal people. Yep. Whether we, the more we do this, the more we're going to encourage people to do what makes them feel comfortable in their own skin and just to be themselves. Yeah. Uh, in, men in particular in our culture, in this kind of, you know, Anglo-Western society, it, it, the the prevalence of, of, of mental health and and the lack of, of dialogue and discourse around it, I mean, it's a lot better now than what my dad's you know, generation and now, you know, before that, like I think about my dad and, and he, I mean, he would be one of my consumers now. If he was still alive, he would be, uh, I see so many of my dads out there. They, they just, they never put their hand up to say, I need some help. Never really looked after their health, especially their mental health. Um, whether it was through pride or just, just a, a cultural thing or, Lack of knowledge. <laughs> I, I agree with you. I the, the awareness is nowhere near what it is now. Mm. I feel like people suffered in silence and yep. no one knew about it. I feel like people suffer in silence now, mm. but we know about it through the suicide rates because suicide is far more prevalent than, than what it was 50 years ago. Or, and, I'm not, and I'm not saying this because I know this for a, for a fact 100%. I'm saying this because this is what research suggests, but maybe people were committing suicide and it wasn't labelled as suicide. Maybe people yeah. were drinking and and we didn't know that it was because of depression. I think um, the impact of, um, you know, the global village now and that things are so accessible and modern technology and social media, like there is... Um, I, I know there's, there's definite links between um, when social media 
kind of came in in the mid 2000s and that generation that have grown up and you know incidents of self-harm in, in young women yeah. um, suicide in young men I think it's pretty clear that the, the, um, the, the line the, the relationship between you know social, social media, media yeah. always being plugged in always being tuned in never 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 doing you know the self-care stuff kids growing up with this stuff today is it's scary um, it, it, it makes a lot of sense and I'm not saying this in a rude way but it makes a lot of sense why we've lost touch with ourselves mm. we, we cannot know I cannot know me and I cannot know you if I'm on my gadget 24-7 mm-hmm. some people do have the ability to run a business and talk on their phone for 6 hours and still be very empathetic I'm not saying that 100% of the population is like this but the majority of us We've lost touch with reality because we are, in, we are engaged in another form of reality and uh, and a non-reality. Yeah, and I see it in my my day-to-day work that people miss that human interaction. Like the the irony of, of social media is it's so anti-social. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, there is there's this kind of fake feeling interaction that you get you know um and when i go out and see people and and whatever i'm helping with or whatever situation i'm in the the overarching thing is just that connectedness that that human element you know that you people don't people don't get much out of um a a facebook like or it's a it's a quick buzz but um i see a lot more out there yeah, that suggests otherwise, you know. You've raised a very good point and there is a lot of the new research that's come out since the mid-2000s with the chemicals that get activated in our brain when we do get a like or when we put up something and mm. people show us that attention. And I feel like because that's happened, social media, it's it's very antisocial, as you said. Mm. And because we're always engaged in it, we've lost that ability to interact with people but I feel like people feel lost because they really want to interact they just don't know how to yeah because they've forgotten how to yeah or they've never been taught how to in the first place because you've got to think about the generation who who was born 10 years ago and when say social media just really came up but maybe their parents never taught them because their parents were always on these devices Mm -hmm. I'll say so with my daughter, mate. It's a very, very complex web that that is going to take a lot of work to untangle. I can see my daughter, the, the drug that is the iPad, <laughs> you know, and just when she hasn't had it in a while or, or, or even when it's like, yeah, you can have some iPad time now, just the, just the, the frenzy, she runs to it, yeah. you know, and it's like this... This device where she can, you know, watch a show or play a game or whatever, but it's it, it is a drug, and I'm I'm so mindful of that, and you know, being pretty strict with time on it, um, and what she's watching, how she's interact, like you know, she's obviously not on social media, but what she's getting from this device, you know, and 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 um, most of the time we're out doing bike rides or bushwalking or playing soccer or something, you know. Um, she's allowed to have the iPad, but I'm just so mindful of the impact. And, you know, (laughs) 
We'll see when social media time does come around for her. <laughs> in terms of internet and technology, it's got its time and place. And there's so many things that technology has done that I cannot argue against. And I won't even, I won't even start there because I can't touch how effective it's been in some areas. Well, yeah, this year in particular, it has literally kept people connected, which is great. Um, <laughs> so in terms of the way we do business in terms of the way foreign exchange works in terms of the way we connect with relatives overseas technology's got its time and place but as you said before if we're not for our young kids we definitely have to monitor but then we sometimes forget to do this ourselves we don't monitor our usage and i know personally when my usage exceeds an hour a day my phone shuts off Moses yeah. Moses could be calling me <laughs> I'll reply to Moses tomorrow and that's one thing that I found very challenging was to slowly decrease that usage yeah. over time yeah and like I remember picking up on this at a really young age um, around video games like I grew up with all my mates PlayStation well, yeah and we yeah and we used to play um Bond. Remember oh, James yeah, Bond? Yeah, Golden yeah. Eye? That's the, the one with the cassette you put it in? Uh, I think it was a cartridge, yeah. And, and you had the split screen. Yeah, so yeah, like, yeah. There yeah, was yeah. four of us and you could shoot each other. And I was hopeless. At, I was that's just, the, uh, yeah. um, the P- Pierce Brosnan one. Yes, yes. Yeah. Pierce Brosnan, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and like we would get it right into it on a Friday night. And, you know, we were 15 years old and playing Bond. And, um, I was addictive, man. It was, was, it was. What I loved about it was like... Uh, all of us mates were together and we'd have a laugh and you know that was it but a couple of my mates were were really good at it and obviously played it a lot <laughs> i was terrible at it and i you know i would be the first killed all the time but because uh, i didn't um i remember not- noticing then look i'm not going home and practicing this i'm not pl- this is it for me um because i don't want this to take over like time where i could be Playing, playing guitar, playing soccer, learning something new, just reading, you know, like I, I read heaps. And to about, this... About Nashville? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most recently, I'm, actually, I read Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. Okay. Yeah, which was a great book. Um, but like, yeah, like instead of that kind of tuning, like the, that tuning into a video game or, you know, the modern day kind of social media, just wasting away the hours on this gadget or game or, you know, Facebook's a game. Let's play Facebook for three hours. Like, I, I don't do that and, and I'm so grateful for, for that I was able to recognise that early early on and decided early on, no, put, put the computer away, pick up the guitar, get the soccer, you know, play soccer. I spent that many hours playing soccer. Um, read, draw, paint, and you know that's I'm I'm really happy with all of these things. I still do all these things. Yeah, it makes sense. You're tapping into different parts of the brain using different layers of creativity, mm. and when you're using different parts of your brain, and you're really, really pushing yourself to be creative, and you're figuring things out. Uh, naturally Mm. you feel good about those things especially when you're enhancing and you're fostering things which you do like to do totally Um, if i don't know if you like to play a violin but if someone was to i do like to play violin and i'm terrible at it and so other people don't like me playing violin fair enough (laughs) can i uh, i'm not trying to put you on the spot but can you play one of your songs oh 
yeah, if you want me to. Yeah. yeah. Can, you, can I give you that acoustic? Grab that acoustic there, mate. So this is the Maton. Yeah. Yep. Any 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 one of your originals, I'd like to hear it. Um, okay. What's can you tell me a bit about the song and Well I might play my dad's song. I wrote okay. a song for my dad called The Carpenter. Okay. Um, just after he passed away. Can I ask when he passed away? Uh, it was just before my daughter was born, so six years ago. Okay. So they just missed each other, which I'm I'm um, convinced that it would have given him a new lease on life. Okay. I mean, he was in pretty bad shape when he when he passed away. He was he was in an aged care bed. Sorry to hear about that. Yeah, he I think he had um, bowel cancer, um, a colostomy bag, and Parkinson's. Like he had a whole bunch of stuff, like and he like a cocktail of illnesses. Yes, yeah. and he went downhill really quick. It was only a couple of years, and, and he was gone. Like so, was he in a lot of pain? Um, I, know, I know bowel cancer can be very painful. Well, he was in a lot of mental pain. Okay, so he was bedridden, but like I saw the impact of of he him not looking after his mental health. For years, okay. and how that he deteriorated really quickly. Okay. He was only, he was sixty-five when he died. About no, 67. and he he was in a, a facility with 80, 90 year olds. You know, he was the youngest there. <laughs> um, yeah, but, sixty-five is young. Yeah. For and, the life expectancy in Australia. Yeah. In twenty in the two thousands or the new millennium. Yeah. And it all got him, but he. He, like he was he was helpless because he had never stopped he was part of that generation you know yeah. um, and so look this song is kind of about him and that you know that kind of uh, the life that he lived and it's called The Carpenter it's called The Carpenter yeah okay yeah and I, I often tell a story where um, he he had all these bits of wood in the backyard and when it was winter, we'd sit around and we'd have like a bonfire out the back, right? Okay. Um, and this is this house now. This, yeah, yeah. So the backyard out the back here, and he he um he had really nice bits of wood that were made that were reserved for like um like uh, verandas and you know, like tabletops and stuff like that. And one night we were having a fire, just my mum, my dad, and myself, and he accidentally fit, threw on a really nice bit of cedar. I think it was. It was like treated, and. When he realised that he 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 got really pissed off and he went really quiet because that was a oh shit that was from the wrong pile, and so we sat there for a, for a bit a minute or something, and my mum said something like, "Oh well, don't worry, at least we're warm." So there was there was there was a, there was some laughter out of it. Well, he slowly he lifted his head and he looked at us and he goes, "I don't give a shit." <laughs> Did you, did you guys laugh more because we, we did we did and then he saw the the, the funny side of it but <laughs> <laughs> so this is this is the carpenter I can't still see you Walking across the back lawn Stacks of wood upon your shoulder You burned the pie But the cedar was a sin Still you might have thrown it in If it got much colder 
just smoke and turn to a frown. I can hear you now telling us about Australian life in that blue mountains town. There's a picture of you on your longboard in the summer 1960 surfer with your young Irish lover And I know I'm your boy, but I never learned to swim Blackhead and thin, and I look more like my mother And her smile could turn it all around I can hear you now Telling us about Australian boy From that blue mountains town Was the twilight years that got you? Black cloud came drifting. Started up your drinking like a soldier out of war. I wish I could see you, and your granddaughter could meet you, and her smile would greet you as she runs to your front door, and her smile would turn this all around. Telling us about Australian blood from that blue mountains town. Woo! Yeah. Thank you, brother. Thanks, man. I'm so grateful for that and. Uh... I was having a look at the way you you're playing those chords. Very simple chord progression, but the way you put everything together, it's a, yeah. it's a unique finger finger picking. You tuck your fourth finger down and you pick. Um, what am I doing there? Yeah, it's it's a. I, I think it's Bob Dylan. Like I learned, I probably listened to Bob Dylan more than anyone in my okay. life. And the the way like those chords are actually there's a song called Boots of Spanish Leather, which kind of goes. So you're picking with your middle. Yeah, like and those seat. two fingers down there. See, yeah. I've got the pistol. No, I normally have the pistol grip. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that kind of... Um, I think Dylan got a lot from um, the early country art, like Woody Guthrie and that. Yeah, yeah. He would do a lot of that. You can build, that, the, that you can build the melody with it. It's very, yeah. very melodic. And there's that kind of root note that you that, that sings out. You come back to yeah, it. Yeah, so that's... Um, I've, I use a lot of that style kind of when I play. Dude, I wanted to say I am so grateful that you had me in your house today. Brother. I'm so grateful for the 
beautiful piece. I'm grateful for your mum's. I haven't had triangle sandwich. <laughs> I haven't had someone cut sandwiches like this, I yeah. think, since I was in high school. <laughs> and I'm grateful for the coffee. No worries, brother. You're more than welcome. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Appreciate it. Cheers, bro.